1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. We are deep into the summer now, just a few days left, and we are delighted to be joined today by... Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. Hello, Evelyn.
0: Hi, David.
1: And Joe Cirincione of the Plowshares Fund. How are you doing, Joe? Hello, David. Just great. And Rosa Brooks, deep in her basement bunker uh, in Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, Rosa.
2: Hi, David.
1: You can tell. You can hear when she's in the bunker, the special microphones that go deep, deep beneath the surface of the earth. Um, So there was a G7 meeting uh, over the weekend and funny thing happened. Um, Nobody at the G7 meeting had any interest at all in discussing whether Russia should join and make it the G8 all over again. Russia had been going to these meetings, and then Russia invaded Crimea, and then everybody thought it was a good idea that they not go to these meetings anymore. Um, Well, nobody was supporting this except one person, Donald Trump. Donald Trump went there and said, well, a lot of people think it's a good idea, and we really think that Russia ought to be and join us, and maybe they should join us again next year. And I thought that was a little curious, since I can see no benefit to the United States. In fact, there's been no change in the position on Crimea. Russia's done a bunch of other things that should make us a little uncomfortable. Uh, And so I thought, since we have some expertise here on the issue, I could just have it rationally explained to me. So, Evelyn, please explain to me rationally why the President of the United States, alone among the leaders of the G7 countries, thinks it's a good idea to have Russia back in the G seven.
0: Well, I can. I, 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 I will be rational, but I might have to speculate. I don't know why he thinks it's a good idea, and I'm and I'm trying to be mindful of your actual question. He may be doing this because he wants to get uh, in the good graces of Vladimir Putin. Maybe because he thinks he might help him win an election again. Maybe. because because he would like to do business with him when he's out of government. I don't know. But what I do know is that Russia, I was in this situation room in the White House. (laughs) I know why and how Russia was kicked out of the G7. And it was because, first of all, it was done by uh, consensus, international consensus. It was not done by Barack Obama, as the president claimed in the press conference that he held today. And, or rather this week, um, and he, and it was, as a result, a direct result of the fact that Russia invaded its neighbor, invaded Ukraine, and illegally annexed Crimea, a territory that, again, is legally still part of Ukraine. So it, it was changing of borders for the first time since World War II through the use of military force that caused the, G, the G8, collectively, minus Russia, to decide to kick Russia out. And that's it. Since then, of course, Russia has done a whole host of other things to upset the G7, which also would make it hard for Russia to get back in, even if they handed Crimea back to Ukraine on a silver platter.
1: Okay. Well, that was a good description of how we got to where we are and a little speculation about why um, Trump would do this. Um, Let's turn to you, Joe. and, And- Let's see if you will say that Trump is Putin's hand puppet, which is my conclusion. But go ahead.
3: I think that the president of the United States is doing Putin's work. He is rewarding Putin. He's doing exactly what, what Putin wanted and succeeding by, beyond his wildest dreams, disrupting the Western alliance, is splitting key European allies from... The United States undermining the credibility of the United States, and here saying, "Well, if we're going to discuss these things, these big global issues, shouldn't we have Russia in the room with us? Bringing him back in, in effect, excusing Putin's uh, occupation and annexation of of Crimea, which, of course, is the reason that he was expelled from from the G8 or disinvited from the from the G8." And let me just add this: this can. Continues a disturbing trend you're seeing in both global affairs and in Trump himself, which is this accommodation to great powers um, annexing uh, territory. So Putin did it with Crimea. You could argue that uh, the Chinese are now doing that with Hong Kong, in po, you know extending their writ of law, extending the Chinese control over over Hong Kong. And just at this summit, you saw. Uh, Modi make a surprise appearance, the Prime Minister of um, of India, and you saw Donald Trump uh, c- condone M- Modi's takeover of Kashmir, uh, uh, violating its its constitutionally and the Indian constitution guaranteed independence uh, and apprising saying about this in particular that I'm sure he'll do the right thing. He's urged calm. He wants us to calm. And then you saw Trump in this issue you've discussed many times on the podcast have his own sort of imperialist uh, ambitions in his desire to acquire Greenland. And in other words, you're seeing this return of 19th century, early 20th century idea that countries can take over Uh, uh, other areas get a little uh, living space, as the Germans called it, extend their reach simply because they're big and they're powerful and they can do it. And the president of the United States, instead of condemning it, is condoning it.
1: Um, Living space. Yeah. Uh, Lebensraum.
3: That's Uh, exactly
1: right. uh, That's an interesting theory of it. Rosa, I think it's because the president really doesn't care about anything. Accept his own well-being and views everything transactionally. And so, you know, if the Chinese can give him something he wants, like a deal, so it makes it more likely to be reelected, like he'll do whatever it takes. And we got a sense of that, by the way, at the G seven meeting too, because he, you know, he said, "Well, I'm going to impose these sanctions," and then the Chinese imposed other sanctions, and then he said, "Well, maybe I don't want to do the sanctions," and then they said, "Well, maybe he does want to do the sanctions," and then he said, "Well." I think we've got a deal percolating, it's very, very clear that Xi Jinping could go to Donald Trump tomorrow morning and say, here's the deal, do what I say, and I'll tell you we have a deal, but, you know, we're going to get the best side of this thing, and by the way, I would like you to dress like a monkey and dance next to me when I play the accordion, and and Trump will go, okay, you know, if you if you, if you get the deal, if I get reelected, Um 'Cause I think it's all it's it's all very short sighted and, and, and very personal. Um, but maybe I'm oversimplifying this, Rosa, and, and he actually has some broader ideology. I,
2: I think you're you're undersimplifying it actually. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: I think Trump is not
1: I've never been accused much, of that.
2: <laughs> he's not as much of a rational actor, I think, as you're making him out to be. Because the scenario you just laid out uh, involves a vision of Trump, who is extremely short-sighted, but is perfectly rational. And I don't think he is. I mean, this is actually my usual objection to all the various theories in which Trump is is a Russian puppet or he's doing this or that because the Russians have compromising information on him. Um, I think Trump very often does things that are, in fact, good for Vladimir Putin. I think it is entirely possible the Russians have compromising information on him, but I don't think Trump does the things he does uh, out of any particular rational calculation that it is good for him in the long run to do that because he wouldn't want the Russians to release compromising information or something like that. I don't think that he's completely shameless. There is nothing that would compromise him or embarrass him in the public eye, Uh absolutely nothing um and he is mm. he is so erratic and unpredictable that whatever he does you know today uh and whoever flatters him today or gives him something today and makes him say oh yes well now you've helped me i'm going to help you that doesn't mean he's going to do it tomorrow it doesn't mean he's not going to undermine it tomorrow it doesn't mean he's not going to contradict them tomorrow i mean the good news and the bad news is i don't think the russians are controlling trump um, because no one can control trump he's he's out of control he's like it's it's like saying oh i control a toddler you don't nobody does uh so i, I think i think i think it's just it's that simple
1: hmm. well, i think that i mean that's an interesting thing i have a slightly different theory um uh evelyn and and my theory is um you know i don't think i mean i don't think the russians need depth compromising Information on Trump. What could they have that's more compromising than what we already know? People have accused Trump of rape. They've accused him of sexual harassment. They've accused him of. Uh, the federal government has accused him of violating uh, campaign finance laws. The New York Times has made a very strong case that he's a tax fraud. People have revealed countless embarrassing things about him. That you know, I mean, I, you know, if the Russians came out with a P tape tomorrow, everybody'd be like, "Yawn, big deal," but. They did intervene on his behalf in the 2016 election. He had a predisposition to them beforehand. Uh, it is really, really sort of, you know, been a pattern um, that, you know, he has taken their side. I think in part because, you know, they, the, 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 the one area where they could reveal something that would be his undoing. Uh, would be about cooperation in and around the twenty sixteen election. And um when I look at it, I look at quid pro quo. I look at, you know the 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 Russians helped him in the election. They helped tip the scales for him, and uh, immediately started discussing lifting of sanctions. Sanctions were lifted on some people um uh, uh gave them uh, defended them in this particular case, took Putin's side over the intelligence community and the FBI, gave them free leeway in um, Syria, whether you know, I mean I can make a list of a long list of other things, whether it's asking for them to be back into the G8 or getting out of the INF treaty or trying to break up NATO or whatever there's 25 things that Trump has done that are on the Russian agenda that actually aren't on the U S agenda. They're not things that benefit the U S in any way. And so there, there there has to be because there's so many, there has to be a reason for that. And I think he feels he's beholden to them, but that's just me.
0: No, I would agree with you. I, 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 I can't add anything to your list. Um, it's, It's appalling time and again, and all you have to do is, you know, remember, you know, rewind the tape back to Helsinki where it was so blatantly obvious. I mean, he was obsequious, you know, when faced with Vladimir Putin. You know, he's towering over Vladimir Putin, but it was like Vladimir Putin had him, you know, weak at the knees.
3: Yes, Can I add one small piece? I think it's also because he wants Russia's cooperation in the future. And you've discussed some of this in your previous conversations with Jake Sullivan and retired General uh, Clapper and uh, Mike Morrell, but that the, that the Russians are going to interfere again in 2020. So if if... If his overriding imperative, Trump's overriding imperative is to win in 2020, not lose the election, not get indicted, not be thrown in jail, not lose his property, not just see his family destroyed, he probably thinks he needs Russian help and he wants to stay on their good side. So I would expect that we're going to see more and more efforts to do Russia favors, to uh, take Russia's side, to bring them in in the hope that they will again uh, back him and in, interfere in U.S. elections on his behalf in t- November 2020.
1: Um, yeah, I think I, I think he fears. I think he fears what would happen if if they don't. And that, by the way, Rosa, is why I. I you know, I mean, I agree with your comment that I. You know, I'm maybe it it sounded a little bit too rational. I don't even think it's quite at that level. I think it's sort of lizard brain stuff. I think it's. How do I survive? What's the, you know, what's what what do I do to survive right now? And, you know, whenever it comes to one of these kind of things, he just he does it. I mean, you know, that's that's the way that's the way he's behaved uh, throughout. Um anyway, Rosa, you know, another thing that uh came up in the course of this um G7 meeting was uh the fact that the president didn't seem like he wanted to be there. Um, and he was very pouty about the whole thing. And he sort of sat there with his arms crossed and he didn't talk to people, and he looked distracted. And he actually tweeted out things in the middle of his meeting with um with Merkel. Um, I guess this goes back to your analogy of him as a a, a toddler, but I've never really sort of seen this where the, the you know he, he apparently didn't want to go in the first place. Uh, I don't think he thinks the other children play nicely <laughs> with him. Uh, and then I don't know, Rosa. Did you see the picture of Melania looking at Trudeau?
2: I did not see that. No.
1: Oh well, you know, you might want to Google that in the middle of the next exchange. But uh, there's a picture where Melania is looking at Trudeau like he's just the most beautiful man in the world. It, it's it's stunning. Actually, it's really it's really a, quite quite
0: quite a quite <laughs> a great
3: thing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs>
0: But she also she also likes French wine. That, that came up that came up today because um because uh, the French the uh, when Macron and Trump were standing at the podium today, French journalist asked Trump, what, <coughs> excuse me, whether Trump was going to uh, rescind his comment about wanting to put tariffs on French wines because he know because this French journalist noticed that, the, the first lady was enjoying some French wine the evening before. And so uh, President Trump uh, quickly responded that, yes, his wife enjoyed the French wine. And that was it. He didn't answer about the tariffs. <laughs>
1: Jesus, <laughs> it's, it's a, I, I, I just have to believe, right, typically presidents, they get a little bit deeper into their presidency, do more international stuff. Because you know it's harder to get stuff done, and then they they can relate to these other world leaders because you know they're other world leaders, and they have to go through the same kind of thing. But Trump seems strangely isolated. Does he have any friends? I mean, Rosa, that's you're a really very-
2: interesting question. I I don't think he does have any friends. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like it's like the claim about nations having uh no friends only only no only interests um except i'm not even sure trump thinks he has interests he's he has whims he has whims and he has temporary favorites but i don't think he has friends and i don't think melania likes him all that much
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't i don't don't, Uh, he's
2: been
0: shedding friends lately you know that so he has issues obviously with scaramucci um, who's come out publicly and said that he was unstable and should be primaried and, or or should be somehow pushed aside. And then he has also Tom Barak, who's now getting in trouble for um, how he spent the money, the inaugural funds, and those two <sighs> apparently have fallen out. The only one who I still see will comment as if and be quoted as if he's a friend, although I suspect it's more of a professional friend, is that guy Chris, Chris Cox, I believe, is his name. He has some kind of publication. Um, so these are these are kind of transactional friends, I think.
1: Well, I think Lindsey Graham will. If sometimes Trump finds a stick in the backyard, if he throws it, Lindsey Graham will go <laughs> and fetch it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right? Trump's
3: best friend, Lindsey Trump. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Lindsey Graham. <laughs> he,
1: he doesn't. He doesn't have a dog, but he's got Lindsey to sort of run up and and pant. Um, it it, it, is a, it is a kind of a, a, a strange situation because the president has also sort of broken himself away from the policy process. He doesn't have close advisors. Um, although, I don't know, Evelyn, did you read the New Yorker article on Pompeo?
0: Yes, it was fascinating. So Susan Glasser wrote that piece, yeah. And it went all the way back to, Pompeo's beginnings, sort of from West, actually even before West Point. So he's originally from California. Who would have thought? And and um, and his evolution from kind of more left-leaning to regular conservative to Tea Party to you know Trumpist. Um, she she traced it, and and a big part of his his. It seems that his business and political career are he Oh he owes a great deal of thanks to the Koch brothers and or Koch brothers. Um, and, um, yeah, it's a very interesting profile that that Susan did,
1: and I think, Joe, he was described as a guided missile that made its way directly towards Trump's ass. I mean, it was there was some <laughs> there was there was there was some line about the obsequiousness of Pompeo. But the question is, is there anybody around him who actually serves the role of a useful, trusted advisor?
3: Mm, Boy, not that I can think of. I mean, Pompeo is... I mean, I've always thought of him as the Frank Underwood of this administration, this guy who's, you know, from from House of Cards, this guy was an obscure Kansas congressman who becomes director of the CIA and then maneuvers to become secretary of state and clearly has his eyes on the White House at some point and knows how to say all the right flattering things to Trump to, to get what what he wants. Um, is so that's a flattering, you, right? You're right, obsequious relationship. Um, John Bolton, I wouldn't consider him a trusted advisor. Though in many administrations, your national security advisor is supposed to be that. But uh, but Bolton has has sort of enabled Trump by by smashing the the national security apparatus we don't have thanks to Bolton, and maybe because Trump doesn't like them either, the kind of normal um, National Security Council meetings where everybody comes and discusses a policy option and debates the pros and cons, exchanges views. Nothing like that happens. That gives Bolton more power, but it also gives Trump more power. Of course, we no longer have press briefings not only in in the white house so there's a press secretary apparently i don't know what her name is stephanie something never seen her doesn't have press Gresh- briefings i think
1: gresham stephanie okay
3: gresham. great that's great but apparently he's doing we don't have press briefings in the state department we don't have press briefings in the department of defense the american people's right to know has been completely crippled um and it's you know in some ways it's like the the that this loneliness of this man, Trump is just manifest, as loneliness is manifest in, in the whole uh, executive branch. Everybody else, go away, you know, leave us alone. We're not going to have gatherings. We're not going to have discussions. We're not going to tell you what we're doing. Uh, it, his, the Trump pathology has infected the entire executive branch. Um. Yeah, it's, it's it seems as
1: though that that's happened, you know. And Rosa sort of picking up on a theme that we 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 talk about um, episode to episode, and we talked a little bit about it in the last episode, which is sort of the unfitness for the job. One thing that I have to admit that I that that surprises me is that we don't seem to have much of an opposition party in the United States. We have people who make speeches and tweets, but I but I don't see a whole heck of a lot of activity designed to deal with these issues. Do you think that that's too harsh? Do you think the Democrats have any uh, sort of soul searching to do about how little they've done in the face of Trump?
2: Well, I I, I guess, I mean, yes, to answer your last question, um, the the Democratic Party, and we've we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, uh, I think the leaders of the Democratic Party have been um, you know, too, too hesitant to sort of stand up to their constitutional responsibilities, which I think transcend, you know, their, their electoral prospects, frankly. Um, uh, you know, the, they, they obviously are making a calculation. This is the, the Nancy Pelosi crowd, that things like impeachment proceedings would be unpopular and would hurt the Democratic Party in 2020. I, I think whether that is the case is, is unknowable. Um, in part because we, of course, don't know what impeachment proceedings would, would bring out, what further details they would bring out. But I also think that, you know, that, that speculative danger at the ballot box is is counterbalanced by the, you know, very real non-speculative long-term dangers of, of you know, ignoring a manifestly corrupt uh, and unfit president, um, that said, like going going beyond the sort of leadership of the Democratic Party itself, I do think you're being perhaps too harsh if we look more broadly at uh, you know the opposition. I, I think there is there is plenty of very active opposition. I think that one of the, again, sort of few silver linings of the of the Trump era is that it has really led to the um, mobilization. Um, of of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Americans who were not politically active or engaged previously. Um, I, you know, it's funny, I, I see it even in my own <clears throat> neighbors and, you know, the parents of kids who go to school with my kids, things like that, you know, people who are are not, you know, their jobs are not in the world of politics. Their lives have never been in the world of politics. And yet so many of them have been, you know, going to protests, organizing protests, you know, signing petitions, doing get out the vote, you know, you name it, that, that, that people have been shocked into action uh, by Trump and so many of his policies. And the, you know, the resistance is alive and well. Uh, you know, will it again? Will it will it be successful in in an electoral sense? I, I don't know, but but I I think that's actually one of the genuine silver linings is a is a far more engaged population that 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 many people who had been kind of lulled into passivity of oh look you know. The moral arc of the universe arcs towards justice. Barack Obama Mm -hmm. got elected. He's a nice guy. He's African-American. See, um, you know, everything is fine. Everything's gonna be fine. Everything's gonna just get better and better and better, slower, slowly, maybe slowly, but it's it's going in that direction. And that trend is not gonna be reversed. Well, it was suddenly and shockingly reversed. um, And that has really radically changed how many ordinary Americans think about politics.
1: Yeah, yeah, it has now. Let's let's you know, let's not dwell too much on ordinary Americans cuz none listen to this podcast. Um let's sort of deal with the universe of it's true, you know. Nobody's sitting there in a tractor going, "Oh, I want to hear more Joe Serracioni today." And, uh, yeah. um, you don't think they yeah.
3: huddle? You don't think they huddle around their iPhone and cheer? Oh people? yeah, no.
1: You could just see them at Tulsa at the diner going, "Do you see? Do you see the spandex Serracioni's been wearing recently? It's just amazing. I got to get one of those bike outfits. It's, I'm going to look
3: so French." Um, but, uh, I'm biking home right after this podcast, and yes, I will be wearing bike shorts. <laughs> wow!
1: Wow! Oh, please, please post those pictures for our <laughs> fans on the, on the on the Twitter net. But, um, but but let's talk about the inside the Beltway take of this. You know, thing. It's kind of late in the summer. You know, people. You know, the couple days of August, and then we're into September, and you know, it's going to get pretty intense pretty quickly because we got September, October, November, December, January, and then you're into primaries. And uh, um, people are going to start dropping out of this thing and polls are some of the polls are showing things that are tightening up on the democratic side um but I, and and I don't want to put anybody in an awkward position so you don't have to like declare allegiance and I don't want you to condemn people you don't want to condemn but when you talk to your friends Evelyn, you know who are you know insiders you're probably every night at cocktail parties and <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, you know me.
1: Yeah, it's, kind of, it's probably a lot of rose in your life. And and in people are, you know, talking <laughs> at, at these at, at these things. Um, it, it, who who do who are the insiders who who are sort of top of the list for the insiders and the Democratic side in Washington?
0: Well, that's interesting. I just had coffee with a very senior insider who could be a cabinet official in the next administration. And I think most of the insiders think there's a at least a 50% chance it's going to be Biden. And most of them are either working for him or say something along the lines of, well, he doesn't really need me anyway right now. Um, but all of those insiders, um, I think, frankly speaking, would prefer... Someone a little younger, to be honest. Uh, you know, I'm trying to be <laughs> okay. careful here.
3: Um, um, yeah.
0: Someone younger, you know, and and not, but, but everybody agrees that Joe Biden would be the perfect palate cleanser. You know, we would get the bad taste that Rosa described out of our mouths and, you know, maybe be able to turn over a new leaf. Maybe he would appoint a couple of um, never-Trumper Republicans to his cabinet and at other levels in the government and the Republican Party could maybe... Rest itself back from Trump, and then we could, you know, get back to normalcy. Uh, to use a a long ago, long discarded campaign phrase from another time. I think it was Harding. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and so, you know, th- I think most people think it'll probably be Biden. The second likely one would be Elizabeth Warren. But people who are insiders. Of my ilk, meaning they're more center to right of center in terms of their where they fit in the Democratic Party, are concerned about Elizabeth Warren because many of us have Republican and independent friends, and we know that they find her somehow frightening and and andor off-putting. And they think and and the insider Democrats who are in the center so noting the alarm that their Republican and independent friends feel when it comes to her also note that they think many of her policy ideas are a little unrealistic. So the question is then would she temper those if she came into office? Um, So, so, so she's the other one. There is also a chance that, that, you know, we are, we are lacking imagination. I mean, I listened to Steve Bullock the other day, on MSNBC, uh, one of the programs did like a longer interview with him. And I actually was impressed and I kind of liked the fact that he was around my age, and, um, which seems to be, I think, a good age. You know, being in your 50s or 60s seems like the right age when you have some experience, but you're not slowing down. Um, so, so the insider, t- now I, that's just me on the Steve Bullock thing. I think, again, most, most of the insiders think Joe Biden. Um, Elizabeth Warren. Some people like Kamala and have lined up behind her, but I think her debate performance uh, was off-putting for many and kind of um, dimmed her star as the polls have also demonstrated. So that's kind of my quick and dirty. But Joe, I bet mean, Joe, Joe-
1: Yeah, I bet I think Joe hangs out with completely different sort of people.
3: <laughs> no <drinker. Yeah. laughs> Yeah, we drink bourbon, uh, not uh, rosé, but we but we have these same talks. Um, and of course, whenever you hear this talk about Biden, who by far is the establishment uh, consensus choice, I think of when I was hired to be vice president for the Center for American Progress, and one of the attractions to me, were, were, the, were the part of the pitch, was that this was the think tank of Hillary Clinton. This was in 2006, and she was going to be the next president. Nobody was going to touch her, and that was the accepted wisdom. And that was, you know, it was all the the. Policy apparatus was set up to support her. The DNC was set up to support her. Everybody thought it was going to happen. Well, you know. So I, 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 the, the, the coming to the talk that I hear is that uh, Elizabeth Warren is on the rise and that the more you see her, the more you like her. I understand exactly what you're saying, Evelyn, but I think as you, as you see more of her, as she, as she pr- improves her presentation style, her ideas uh, don't seem unrealistic. They seem ambitious. Uh, she is attracting Bernie-sized crowds now. Fifteen thousand last week. Fifteen thousand people cheering, cheering to 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 see her. There she has her own chance now. Two cents, two two percent, two percent. They no two cents. They say in favor of her her tax, a uh, uh, wealth tax on the upper two percent of the of the income. Um, and Joe Biden is being held, I think he's a good man, would be a very good president. He's being held to an unfair standard that I think is going to hurt him. You know, Donald Trump has told 12,000 lies, outright falsehoods, says crazy things every day. Joe Biden stumbles a little bit on whether it's the 60s or the 70s when when Robert Kennedy was assassinated and Martin Luther King was assassinated. And they're all over him. And that makes front page news. Uh, I, don't, I can't I don't know I can't predict who, whos it, who's it gonna be but Elizabeth Warren, her star is rising. I'd be paying a lot more attention to her.
1: So Rosa, do you have any friends? I mean are you like <laughs> do, 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 or do you just talk to your dog and your kids and <laughs> what
2: Kind of question <laughs> is that Davis who is, I know, who, really? my dog My dog is my friend.
1: Yeah, no. <laughs> I under believe me, I understand that completely. Uh it's my, my life story. Who is your dog for?
2: Um, well, my dog my dog is uh kind of waiting this out, you know. My dog is withholding judgment, um, as I think clearly are, are many Americans. Um I your I Your dog's not in the fight.
0: <laughs> Sorry. My
2: dog is not in the fight. <laughs> my dog is a pacifist. Um yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 as I've said before, I think this is, I think this is all good. I think it's great to have so many talented candidates out there. Um, and I do think that the, I, you know, I think I, I said in, in last Thursday's episode, that one thing I worry about is, is the, the impact of the media echo chamber on perceptions of the Democratic primary Um, Because in an effort to, you know, both appear even-handed and and come up with interesting-sounding stories, there's a tendency to get hysterical every time, you know, there's some minor, trivial gaffe or glitch or weirdness on the campaign trail for any of the major candidates and to sort of turn it into a huge thing. And I, I do worry that that can become self-fulfilling, but, but no, overall, I, I, I think the state of the democratic field is, is a really healthy one. And I think it's, I think it's, it's very, very clear among Democrats is, and I think this is a very good thing for, for Democrats, for the party. Oops, that was my dog does have a thing on
3: this after all.
2: Um, she disagrees with what I just said, apparently. Um, yeah, come
3: on, um, that, that. Yes, it, nod very... once if you're in favor of Bernie. <laughs> nod twice. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, she, what she says
2: basically is she is she is where all the rest of the Democrats are. I think, which is in in saying whoever emerges as the candidate for the Democratic Party, I think, is going to have 100% support from Democrats. I I, I really do not think this is an election, you know, notwithstanding some of the sort of media stuff about oh, well, you know, people think Biden's inevitable if they're not that enthusiastic, or, oh, well, you know, they think Elizabeth Warren is interested, but it's not. she's not electable or blah, blah, blah. I, I do not think that that presages, you know, any given person ends up getting the nomination and half the rest of the people are sulky and say, well, I'm not even going to bother to vote or or I'm not going to vote if it's raining or whatever, or, or I'm going to vote, but I'm not going to do get out the vote. I, I think Trump has successfully unified the Democrats behind the, the, the theory that whoever, whichever one of these people, and there are lots mm-hmm. of ex- excellent people, gets the nomination. Uh, I think Democrats are going to work together in a, a show of party unity that we have not seen for a pretty long time, and are going to be extremely dedicated to getting out the vote and getting themselves to the polls.
1: Now, wait just a minute here. I was all for the, I'm voting for whoever it is, if they're Democrat. I'm like, you know, I signed on. I will vote for whoever If it is if it's a Democrat. I don't want to vote for Tulsi Gabbard, but it's not going to be her. I don't want to vote for Marianne Williamson. It's not going to be her.
2: Um, How can you say that? She she represents love.
1: No, that's true. And, and, she
2: might and, actually be the choice of the dogs.
1: Could, could, she might. Could possi- she looks like possi- a woman who
2: carries dog biscuits in her capacious pockets. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she does. But But having said that, you said that we weren't going to be sulky. And I have to tell you, I will be sulky. If it is not the right candidate.
2: <laughs> well, who if are you devil... going to be sulky about?
1: Well, the point is, I'm not going to be excited <laughs> about a candidate. Look, I'll be direct because all you guys are obviously you know, measuring your terms because you think maybe I'll end up in the government in this next administration. And I'm we want gonna... you to
2: give us a job in your cabinet.
1: Yeah, but I'm not going to end up in this administration. And I got no horse, you know, no desire to do that. Um, I live in over a pizzeria in Greenwich Village now. And I got to tell you, if Joe Biden is the candidate. I will vote for him. I believe he will mm-hmm. be surrounded by quality people, but I'm not going to be excited by that.
2: David, you know? I don't care if you're excited, but you better be doing get out the vote work. No, you know, of course. I don't care if you of personally are well, excited. Well, no, no, but I I mean, mean, you were saying, really my point. That's really the point.
1: You were saying, saying sulky. I will work. You but you have
2: it. to sulk privately.
1: No, I, I will, just between me and the 25,000 <laughs> people who are listening to this show, because I actually think you ought to pick the best candidate. And I think the candidate ought to be able to be reelected four years later. And I think the candidate ought to be focused on the future. And I think the candidate ought to have some energy. And I'd like to see a candidate who was not committed to making the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, and I think, frankly, compromised by the Democratic establishment, like the Re- Republican establishment, has led to a lot of the conditions that created Trumpism. Now, you know, this is not, I'm not asking you guys to say the same kind of thing here. But for those reasons, I think it's time that we get, you know, fresh perspectives. Do I think the people around Biden are good people? And do I think he would competently run the government of the United States? And do I think he would be one quadrillion times better than Donald Trump? Of course. But having said that, I actually think that Donald Trump is in deep trouble in terms mm-hmm. of election. I think the economy is going to make it worse. I think out, out scandals are going to make it worse. I think he is going to have... Uh, people in the Republican Party not super enthusiastic about standing next to him on platforms. And as a as a consequence, I think there are four or five Democrats that could beat Donald Trump. And what I'd rather do is I'd rather see the one who was the best president that could come out of that group be the candidate. Um, now, having said that, one last question. Uh, to, same question to each of you. Evelyn, if you talk to someone of your high-powered foreign friends, and they said to you, how many people have a legitimate chance to be the next president of the United States? What's the number?
0: Uh, legitimate chance? I mean, I think there are probably about 10 you know, right now of all the people who are vying. Uh, I, I believe about nine have made it to the debate stage, but I think again, i I think there are a couple who haven't made it to, to the debate stage but are still viable. so at least ten I'd say 10, you know between uh, I guess t- you know around twelve, twelve to fifteen, I don't remember now you know I don't know the exact numbers, but certainly more than just one or two. It's too early. it's too early.
3: okay, Joe, what do you think? Jeez. How many <laughs> I agree that there's about ten people who would be solid candidates, but I really think that some of the, the those uh, uh, like Steve Bullock, who's a good governor, uh, a little too fond of nuclear weapons for my choice, but but still c- would be quite a good president. I just don't think they they built up enough traction, enough support to be able to do it at this point. So my number would be like four. I think there's four of the candidates who could have a solid shot. At getting the the nomination at this point,
1: Rosa, what's the number? Rosa, what does Scout the number is?
2: Uh, um, oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> Scout says bark, 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 bark. Um, I'm, she's with Joe on this point. Um, uh, I, I, I think that's right. I think that the seemingly very large Democratic field at this point. Realistically, is probably um, Biden, Warren, Harris, and Buttigieg. Um, um, I think it's entirely possible that one of the others could end up being somebody's vice presidential running mate. Um, but my guess is that it's gonna it's gonna be one of those four. See, I, I, would, I, I, I may wrong. I may be wrong in counting out Bernie, but I have a feeling it's not gonna be Bernie.
1: I. I... By the way, I think the number is also four, um, and I think your assessment is 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 pretty close to correct. I don't think Bernie really has a chance to do it. Buttigieg might be it. You know, I mean that that fourth slot is 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 pretty wide open. Uh, you know, you could still see I don't know Cory Booker or somebody come and step into it. But but it, it's 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 probably that and. The reality is, the running mate is likely to be the per- one of those four people too. Um, uh, at least,
3: it's it's possible. What do we know? It's it's yeah. Go on, Joe. Just for the record, I would put Bernie in that slot rather than than Mayor Pete. Um, I do think he has. Just, I don't. You should not underestimate the enthusiasm, the machinery, the attraction of his ideas, especially when you put him up against Trump. Just, but that's the diversity of this panel. So.
1: Yeah no no we 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 all we 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 all have different things and by the way i think that the way you know i mean everybody you know jumped on kamala harris but one of the reasons i think they jumped on kamala harris was it she was the one who seemed best positioned to step in if biden faltered to me because she was the one who could appeal to the left and the right of the party and you know as it happened she's a woman of color and I you know I think she got the Hillary treatment following that last debate, and I think there's still a chance that she can rebound with a couple of good performances. Um, very high quality candidate. Meanwhile, you know the good news is any of those people become president of the United States, I'm perfectly happy with that, and much happier than I than I am right now. Having said that, it's not completely true because I go on vacation tomorrow, and I'm very happy about that, uh, and get to take a week of. Of 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 break, and I hope that uh, um, all of you also get to enjoy the last few days of the summer before we come back hard um, into the real sort of nuts and bolts the the year before the campaign, uh, and and God knows what lunacy that's going to trigger from our president. Uh, in the meantime, thank you, Evelyn, and thank you, Joe, and thank you, Rosa, and uh, thank you everybody for listening and. For more of our podcast, go back and listen to what we've done recently because we've been producing actually an unusually high number of podcasts a week the past few weeks. Go to the DSR network, listen to those other podcasts, and while you're there, uh, spend a moment, click on becoming a member uh, and uh, helping to support this venture. Uh, So uh, I personally will be back to you in the early days of September following Labor Day and uh, wish you all a good Labor Day. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.